Hi everyone, welcome to Zoomies, your dog podcast. I'm Adriana Milne, your local dog trainer from Pet Pals Dog Training. And thank you so much for joining us this afternoon on Radio Karen. And today we have the pleasure to welcome in our studio, Kay Hargreaves. Kay, hello. Hello. Hi, how hello. are you, Kay? Yes. Um, great to be here. Great to be here. So would you like to talk a little bit about yourself and how did you uh, got into dog training and your past professional background before becoming a dog trainer? A great pleasure to have. A great warm welcome to you, Kay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, I, I got into professional dog training pretty much by accident. Um, I... Um, was doing a mature age law degree in um, the late 80s, early 90s. And um, this was a time when the economy was in recession. And, well, I was a single woman. I had a mortgage. I uh, found it very difficult to get part-time jobs that fitted in with my study timetable. And um, I was training my own German shepherds, River and Valley, um, as, as just as a hobby. And... Um, I'd be training them in the park on the weekend and I'd look up and I'd notice I had an audience of you know, people watching me and someone would come over and say, hey, do you give lessons? And I said, no, I'm just training my own dogs. Anyway, um, I couldn't get work, part-time work, um, to fit in with my law studies. And one day someone came up in the park and said, do you give lessons? And I said, sure. And I thought, well, this is something that I could do one hour at a time on the weekend <laughs> that wouldn't interfere with my lecture timetable. So I said, sure, okay, let's let's do it. And I started doing um, you know, private lessons, <laughs> um, going into people's homes and helping them with their pet dog training problems. And the funny thing is, by the time I'd finished my law degree, this is six years of very hard work, um, I'd built up a very good dog training business that had, had, had done very well. Wow. <laughs> um, and it was so funny because, um, you know, uh, all that hard work to, to get a law degree and then I, I finished and then went on to um, take my um, my part-time dog training business to make it full-time. <laughs> and, and, well, the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> Wow. So, and in the grass law degree, you never actually pursued that further professionally. No, it was just more the qualifications, and then you went to this other world, dog training. Yeah, that's how you Well, went. yes, I, I have the law degree, but I've never actually practiced okay. as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. However, it didn't all go to waste. It's a very useful um, degree to have. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm glad that I understand legal issues. Um, because there's always um, some connection between the law and whatever you're doing in life mm -hmm. um, uh, in relation to dogs or in relation to anything else in the community. I mean, I'm quite passionate about, um, you know, human rights. Mm -hmm. um, you know, before I did my law degree, I was working with um, domestic violence and women's mm -hmm. refuges, and mm -hmm. I got in, into, you know, um, in, you know, human rights and, and women's rights. Um, and Beautiful. I've done a number of different things, but ultimately, you know, they all fit together. You'd say, well, mm. what's, there's no connection between law and, and dogs. But yes, there is really. Everything is connected to everything else. Mm. 
Nothing goes to waste. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. And so how were your early, the beginning in dog training, the early years in dog training, the experiences you actually had while training your own dogs? Well, um, I got into training because I got two beautiful German shepherds and that they had a reputation for being a fairly serious breed and you had to train them. So I went to the German Shepherd Dog Club and enrolled and did a, a few classes. But I, to be honest, I was um, very dissatisfied. Um, it was, you know, route marching up and down on the oval, left turn, right turn, halt, you know, praise your dog, left turn, right turn, halt, correct your dog. And I said to the instructor, why should I correct her? She hasn't done anything wrong. And he got really angry with me because I was, you know, questioning him. And I thought, well, look, this is ridiculous. I, I want to train my dog, but I don't need to be route marching up and down on the oval like I'm in, um, you know, in the army. In the army, that's right. Um, what I need is, and, and, and also what dog owners need generally, is help with how to manage their dog, you know, as a pet dog living at home and living in the community to, to do the right thing socially and, and, and behave in a practical way at home and in the community. And route marching up and down on the oval, going left turn, right turn, halt, is not going to teach it's you how to do to that. Leave. Definitely not. I agree. <laughs> so um, I stopped going to classes and I was training my own dog. And then, uh, as I said, people started um, asking me to do lessons. So when I did lessons, I started offering to do pet dog training in your own home. So you got the individual attention. If you wanted to teach your dog to go and lie down on the mat in the, your living room, well, we were there mm -hmm. to do it on site. Yeah. If you wanted your dog you know, to, to stop you know, barking at visitors when they came into the house, then we could do that. We'd go to the front door. You, you know, we can teach the dog to sit at the at the front door and we can get some a helper to come in and play the role of the visitor. Mm -hmm. We could go through it in practice yep. in in the home. In real um, life scenarios, isn't it? And, and on an oval like that, up and down, is not real life. <laughs> that's exactly right. So I was, I believe, a pioneer in offering private lessons, but also one-on-one -on -one individual lessons rather than group classes mm -hmm. and doing it in the person's own home and making training relevant to everyday life rather than formal mm -hmm. obedience, as it was called then. Yeah, sensational. Congratulations. Wow. And Thank in, you. in regards to your very special dogs that you've had in your life, so the activities that you actually participated with them and how did they make you a better trainer? Well, um my real heart dog was my first German Shepherd, River, and she was the most intelligent dog with the greatest cognitive ability that I've ever come across mm. um, and very willing. All I had to do was communicate to her what I wanted and she, right, okay, gotcha, I'll do it. Beautiful. Um, and she would work things out in a way that I think is quite extraordinary. Mm. Um, and... That was a revelation to me to to know that dogs, 
you know, weren't just robots that, you know, you wouldn't sit and push down their bum. You could say, I have I have a problem. You use your intelligence and go and solve the problem, and she would do it. Wow. Um, so she taught me a lot about, well, my challenge is how do I communicate to my mm-hmm. dog what I want her to do? She's capable of working out what to do as long as I can communicate it to her. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that you often hear uh, dog trainers say is their biggest learning experience comes from a dog with problems. Mm-hmm. Certainly, if you have a dog that has severe or complicated behavior problems, then you really have to dig deep. You know, you mm-hmm. have a dog that has severe behavior problems, fear, aggression, anxiety, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't just say sit and push their bum down because that's not what it's about. No. Um, you have to dig deep into behaviour and motivation and um, the emotional life of the dog and how you modify behaviour, how you desensitise the dog. These are all you know, skills that um, I originally learned when I was doing my first undergraduate degree and I, I did a bit of psychology. Mm-hmm. This is going back to... You know, a hundred years ago, in in psychology and behaviour science, it was done, you know, with with humans, um, with um, you know, adults who had psychological problems. It was done with, you know, how do you, um, you know, use psychological methods to teach children. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same body of knowledge is now being applied to dog training. I mean, in in the bad old days, it was all force based. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, I am the master, you obey, and if you don't obey, you get forced. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't do that anymore. We've been asked to be science-based, and we're applying the psychology of behaviour, and particularly you know, positive reinforcement. Teach the dog desirable behaviour, reinforce mm-hmm. good behaviour. And dog trainers have to learn what university students are learning as part of a, a psychology degree. It's a hard thing. Yes. N- not every dog trainer has a PhD in behavioural science. I mean, some of them haven't even been to university. Yep. And that's no disrespect, but mm-hmm. we are asking them to take on board a body of knowledge that would normally be done as part of an undergraduate degree and then do a special application mm-hmm. to dogs, which is a, the, their particular target population. Now, mm-hmm. that's... That's quite a, a hard ask. Yes, very well said. Yes, very well said. And uh, after this German Shepherd, uh, what are the dogs like that you owned that taught you? Well, my second German Shepherd, Valley, was a total contrast. She's an absolutely gorgeous dog, very well-bred, beautiful, very enthusiastic, but silly as a wheel. I mean, if we, again, in no disrespect intended, but she was the dumb blonde of the dog world. Um <laughs> absolutely delightful and full of enthusiasm, but not a thought in her head. Um, But she was a wonderful dog in a totally different way from River, who was the thinking person's dog. Mm -hmm. Um, They were each beautiful dogs and unique, but so different. Um, Then um, one day my neighbour said this little dog had turned up and it was a long weekend and she couldn't find the owner. He was a little scruffy dog, and um, I ended up looking after him over the weekend. And we never found his owners. Um, his name was Nicholas, 
and I think he was a Sky Terrier, but he was a scruffy little terrier muff, and he was the most endearing dog. Um, so I I took him on board as well, um, and I remember a funny thing. I mean, he he was a gorgeous dog; everyone loved him, um, but. Being a terrier, he had an, an, an independent streak. Now, we went to the park one day, and he was running around, a very big park, and I was ready to go home, and I called him. He didn't turn up, and I got really annoyed. Here I was, you know, it's time to go home. Nicholas, Nicholas, and and, you know, and, and he's, well, hang on. I, I don't give a toss about you. I'm running around in, in the park, and I'll come when I'm good and ready. And I just... You know, um, cracked the shits, and I said, "Right, I'm getting in the car," and I drove off. And then, um, and then uh, after I'd driven off, uh, after a while, I said, oh, I can't just drive off and leave him in the park. <laughs> so I drove back, went into the car park, and um, Ten minutes later, Nicholas turned up. Oh, yeah, hi, I'm ready to go home. He hadn't even noticed that <laughs> I'd left. Know, he was exhausted. I drove off and left him. Then I came back and he said, okay, right, I'll hop in the car now. <laughs> so he didn't <laughs> have an effect. <laughs> yeah, you want it. Oh, it oh, dear. So anyway, um, but he, he, was, he was a lovely dog. Um, and um, then I had... Uh, uh, each dog I acquire in a different way. Um, 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 it was actually the 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 night, the terrible night when um, River died. Mm. She she had a, a hemangiosarcoma, which is a, a sudden bleeding of an internal tumor. Mm. She'd been fine, and then suddenly she had a, a bleed, and it's a fatal condition. We're in at the vet. And she had to be euthanized, or well, she would have. She was on the way out from shock and blood loss, but um, she was then euthanized. Um, and so she went peacefully. Um, I got home at about five o'clock in the morning, and we had uh, a puppy class nine o'clock the next morning. Mm. And I rang a woman called Anne, who was instructing with me, and said, "Anne, can you come over? River just died, and I, I, I'm absolutely cactus. Um, can you come over and take puppy class?" And she was, of course, very shocked. Mm-hmm. She lived on um, a street called Elgar Road in Box Hill, so she got in her car and she was coming to my place and there was this German shepherd running around in the middle of the road. Um, so being the person that she was, she stopped and she asked some kids nearby, do you know this dog, do you know where he comes from? No one. So she just chucked him into the car <laughs> and said, I'll, 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 I'll sort him out later. She arrived at my place and she said, look, I'm sorry to do this to you today of all days, but I've just picked up this dog running around in the street. Um, can you look after him and then I'll go home and investigate, you know, um, who his owners are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, long story short, um, we never found his owners. Mm. He was a beautifully, very well-bred German shepherd, um, about 15 months old, Um and somehow he'd um, been running around in the street, and I ended up um, adopting him, and he was the most wonderful dog. Mm. And it turned out um, that he was epileptic, and he would have, you know, severe seizures, 
and become very disoriented. That's, in retrospect, that was why he was running around on the road. Couldn't find a way home. Mm, well, he was, yeah. I mean, it was he, it was like his behavior after a seizure. Mm-hmm. He would be disoriented and he would just start to run. He would run and run and run in the middle of the road. Um, and then eventually, you know, that the, the, he would return to normal. But mm-hmm. he had this behavior of, of just going crazy and running after he'd had a seizure. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I can remember one morning uh, after I'd adopted him. I used to get the uh, the newspaper delivered in those days. I'd get up. I was in my dressing gown in the morning, and I'd go out into the front garden and pick up the newspaper, then go inside, have a coffee, and read the paper. But in that time, um, Elgar, um, who was named after Elgar Road, the road dog, mm-hmm. uh, he slipped out uh, the, the front gate uh, early morning, peak hour traffic, Mm-hmm. Um, he had a seizure. He, he went running down the, the, the middle of the road mm-hmm. into the intersection with the traffic lights full of peak hour traffic and fell down and had a seizure in the middle of the road. And there I was <gasps> in my dressing gown oh, and naked no. underneath. <laughs> what a sight. <laughs> running down the middle of the road trying to, trying to pick oh, up my see. dog who'd had a seizure and hold my dressing gown together. Oh, at the same time. Naked yeah. underneath it and carry this dog home in, in, in the oh, middle really? of the, 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 the intersection yeah. with all the, all the, um, the peak hour traffic and people tooting at me. Um, I, mean, so, I mean, that was Elgar. Um, mm. He was a wonderful dog. I mean, when we got him sorted on medication mm-hmm. and he turned into a different dog, oh, God, um, yes. so we no longer had those really crazy incidents. Episodes, but, like uh, that taught me what uh, behavioural effect epilepsy can have on dogs. So that was a learning experience oh, too. Incredible. Yeah. And the thing is, if your dog does something really weird and annoying, well, there are many reasons not to use punishment, but don't punish the dog for running off and not coming when called because mm-hmm. there may well be a very good reason for it. Mm-hmm. He's not doing it to annoy you. He's yep. doing it because he's got something going on that could be a health problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And after Olga, who came after him? Um, well, um, I had a friend with a, a border collie called Kim who was a very difficult dog right from early puppyhood. I saw him when he was a few months old as, as um, a client. He was um, a very anxious dog, but um, he was fear aggressive. Um, and um, his owner and I were the only people who could touch him. I had two very good instructors. They were afraid to go near him mm-hmm. um, because he would bite. He was. This was a serious behavior problem. Mm-hmm. And, My friend and her husband um, got a job, uh, a contract to go overseas for four years as part of her husband's company, and they couldn't take Kim with him, so I looked after him. Mm-hmm. Um, he got on so well with my other dogs, um, and they would come back every six months and see him, but he basically lived with me for four years. Gee, long time. And um, um, he... Again, was such a challenge, but um, I learned. I, I actually, um, I'm very proud of myself. I don't want to boast, but <laughs> to say he was a fear aggressive dog, and no one apart from his owners and me could touch him. 
And I worked on him and I did a subtle kind of leadership thing, Mm -hmm. which is a a bit out of fashion um, these days, but leadership is a subtle social thing. It's not about brute force. But Kim was a dog with a sense of entitlement. So I, I remember I was sitting at home eating a sandwich for lunch and Kim came up um, in a way that only a border collie can. He eyeballed me. Mm. He glared at me as if he was, you know, glaring at the sheep and controlling <laughs> him with his eyes, oh, yes. which is what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, he was glaring at me saying, give me your sandwich, give me your sandwich. Mm-hmm. And I just went on eating and stared at the ceiling and, um, dog, what dog? <laughs> um, and this was the first time that Kim had – um, not been able to get what he wanted through being bossy. Um, and we went on from there and I turned him around in that he became a dog who would work for you or for his mm-hmm. owner through positive reinforcement rather than saying, well, I'm going to control you and, and eyeball you and get what I want. So by the time his owner came back from overseas and took him back permanently, I remember she collected him and she she was going out um, to to her car, leaving my home, and she automatically looked up and down the street to see whether anyone was coming. And I said, oh, you don't have to do that anymore. He's fine. You can go out. You know, people, dogs can come past. He's fine now. He's got over that. Mm -hmm. So I'm very pleased with myself and how I was able to turn him around because he was a lovely dog. Um, And fear-based aggression coupled with a very strong sort of bossy controlling streak. It's a, it's an odd combination. It's a very um, difficult and dangerous combination, actually. Because mm-hmm. yeah. usually you have dogs that are fearful but lacking in confidence. But if you have fear aggression coupled with uh, a sort of a, a confident bossy streak, it's a hard one to deal with. Right. And then she, is, she continued doing the way you taught her to do because oh, he needed yes, to be, yes. you know, reproduced and, and, for uh, her too. Uh, yeah, and, and he lives happily ever after. Beautiful. Sensational. Yeah. Turn around. Yeah. Yes. And then I don't know how many other dogs you had in between, but trying to go back probably to the last two or the present ones uh, in your life. Uh, yes. How well, happy. Um, funny thing is, because um, I, I had had German Shepherds, I had a friend who was involved with a just informal German Shepherd rescue because she'd had German Shepherds, and she phoned me one day, and it was it was actually just after Elgar had died, and she phoned me. She was always ringing up saying, "Oh, look, I've got this German Shepherd. Do you want him?" No, no, no. no Elgar's just died. You've got, I've got this German Shepherd. Do you want him? No, 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 no. One day she phoned and said, "Oh, look, I've got this German Shepherd." Um, she was surrendered to the RSPCA with papers and she's a beautiful female and I thought you might be interested um, and I'm thinking oh no I'm not ready for another mm-hmm. and anyway she said look I've got, I've got her papers you know her pedigree and I looked at it and I'm astonished that her grandma or great great grandmother was my, my lovely Valley oh gee and and then Valley had had pups through her breeder and and one of the pups had been sold to this other guy who mm-hmm. set up a breeding kennel. And anyway, uh, here was um, this beautiful dog, his name was Chance, who was, you know, great-great-granddaughter of, of Valley. And so I, um, I adopted her 
and uh, she was a great dog, but she was quite a, a difficult, um, you know, assertive dog who could be um, dog aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, she also, well, there was one incident where we were out in my backyard um, one evening just sort of looking at the trees and taking in the scene, and this little possum came along the back fence and mm-hmm. we looked at it, and silly little creature must have been tired of life. It hopped down onto the ground mm. and Chance just went chomp, shake, spit, one dead possum and she walked away and she prodded the possum with her nose to make sure that it was dead. I know it wasn't moving. Okay, I'm not interested and she walked away. But she was very predatory in that way. Mm. Um, so she was a bit inclined to be dog aggressive and she was a big powerful dog who did damage to a couple of dogs and then I had to stop having other dogs with me, but um, I had to manage her quite carefully. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, she was big and strong and dog aggressive and, um, um, you know, predatory with small animals. So, um, but wonderful with me and people. Right. That's a very important thing. Uh, Kay, I think we're just going to have a little pause of, to go for a short break. Okay, and we'll okay. be right back after the radio announcements. And you're listening to Zoomies on Radio Karen. Don't worry about a thing, because Atticus Health will make you feel all right. Don't worry about a thing. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright If you got a tummy ache Or you don't feel right Or if you have a nasty rash Keeping you up at night Don't worry About a thing Don't worry Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Zoomies, your dog podcast on Radio Karen. I'm Adriana and I'm had the pleasure today to be interviewing Kay Hargreaves, a wonderful dog trainer from Victoria. Kay, just Hi. is all yours now. <laughs> yeah, look, you've been asking me about how my various personal dogs have come along and they've all arrived under different circumstances. But yes. I think it's really important. Um, to talk about how we lose our dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the circumstances under which a dog dies um, is really important um, and, and it can vary in many ways. Mm-hmm. And whether you, I mean, of course, we grieve for the loss of a dog that we love, but okay, they have a short life compared to us and they have to go. If you're going to have dogs all your life, you're going to lose them. And I think um, River was my heart dog and she lived to ten and a half and she had a medical problem and um, she had to be put down quite unexpectedly. But it was a good end in the in the end. It was a calm and peaceful end and that made all the difference. Um, and Chance, the, 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 the fourth German shepherd that I was talking about who killed the possum, mm-hmm. um, she... Um, uh, the, the circumstances were that um, 
she had a medical problem. She, it was was hemangiosarcoma. She was bleeding internally, and and about to die from loss of blood. And um, and, and the vet was saying, look, um, I'm not going to be able to save her. Um, and you know, and I said, um, oh, and and. I'd gone home while they examined her, and they said, "Look, we've done an X-ray. Um, she's, you know, she's got the the, the 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 cancer has moved around. She's got tumours on her lungs. Yeah. Well, there's one that we can see, and in 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 a couple of months' time, I mean, there'll be a dozen that we can't see that'll grow, yeah. and in a couple of months' time, she won't be able to breathe. And I thought, I'm not going to put my dog through that. You know, I'm going to have her humanely." You know, euthanized while she's still reasonably comfortable, yep. rather than say, "Oh well, I can't bear to part with you. Let's, I want to have you no. for another month or two, so that her last couple of months are pain and suffering." No, no I can't do that. So, and I said to the vet, um, "Well, you're telling me she's got these nodules. Um, it's inoperable, <laughs> and her quality of life will only get worse." So I would rather have her put down now while she's comfortable. Yeah, humanely. And uh, yes, and he, and he said, yeah, that's understandable. Um, I said, okay, so I came in, I was with her, and um, he he had given her some um, sedation. He'd also uh, given her some, um, uh, uh, like a, a saline drip. So you know, she'd had loss of blood, but he'd, he'd put in some... Um, some saline solution into her veins, mm-hmm. and that had temporarily perked her up. Mm-hmm. So when I arrived, um, it was like, and she came out, oh, right, how, hi, great. Oh, and she went to the door, well, we're going home, okay, let's go. Mm-hmm. And I'm oh, I'm sorry, darling, mm-hmm. no, we're not going home. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we went into the consult room, and I had half an hour with her, yeah, and, and they gave me a nice, comfortable mat for her to lie on, mm-hmm. and she was... Her energy was ebbing away, and she just lay on her mat, and she rested her chin on 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 my foot, mm. and and we sat there together, and she was gradually fading away, mm-hmm. and I had those lovely, precious moments with her. Yes, the last moments, you know, you cherish forever. Yes, and the, and I said to the vet, okay, we're ready now, and yes. she already had the um you know, the, the, the drip and the yes. lines, so she didn't even have to have an injection. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just put, well, what, what we call the, the green fluid, um, mm-hmm. he put that straight into the, into, um, in, in, into, the, uh, into the sort of, into her veins vein, without yeah. having to do anything else. Yeah. And she just closed her it's eyes. Very quick. I could see her breathing, her chest was mm-hmm. going up and down, and then her chest stopped moving, and I thought, oh, she's gone. And the vet said, "I'm just going to do another lot of um, of the fluid. Um, just it's an overdose of anesthesia, yes. just to make sure." Yeah. Um, but that she went peacefully, and um, and it was good in a way. I mean, if you have, um, you you can put yourself in a situation, but the dog is with you until the last breath. I think it's really important for the owners that, who can yeah, be there with that's them. At absolutely, the yes. Precious that time together. Yeah, we, we have a saying because I, I don't know if, if you've actually seen a dog being euthanized. It's um, um, it's an overdose of general yes. anesthetic. Yeah, a, um, a dog and a horse. I, I lost both. Yeah, I was beside. Yes. yes, I was startled by the the that brilliant emerald green color 
there's, um, we, we have a little saying um, um, about, you know, the green dream. Mm. Um, and, and we used to say, oh, the dog's walking down the long corridor the with long the corridor. big green double doors at the yes, end. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't until um, I, I had chance uh, euthanized that night that I saw how startling that emerald green colour was. Incredible, yeah. And Incredible. that's one of those associations that I retain. That Forever. it was an emotional yes. moment. Very strong. Very and strong. I have this strong association of Absolutely. this brilliant emerald green colour. Yes, I believe. So now, uh, moving on in regards, like your involvement in any dog clubs, have you participated with any of the dogs in any dog obedience club or competitions in the past? And then your um, present involvement, you know, with clubs. Yeah, now? look, um, I'm not really into competition. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm more interested in practical pet dog training and teaching the dog to be comfortable at home and in the community um, rather than. Um, competing and being technically good and winning ribbons and trophies. Yeah. I think some – look, I think it's very good. I know a lot of people who compete in agility and fly ball and nowadays we have interesting things like, you know, doggy dancing. And, yes. you know, if you've got an active, intelligent dog, it's great. But at the same time, I'm personally not into competition. Mm-hmm. I do sometimes do consults with – um, these um, experienced and advanced trainers mm-hmm. where I tweak their technique and I can say, look, you just have to move your hand a fraction to the left or a little bit higher and, you know, you do this and you do that and then suddenly the dog is behaving a, a lot better and mm-hmm. so um, I, I'm, I'm good at giving trainers input into, into their their technical technique so they get a better result. Because right. quite often even the good trainers – are waving their arms around and I say, mm. keep your arms still. So, well, I am. No, you're not. Fold your arms in front of you. Now mm-hmm. say the word and keep your arms still. And, and lo and behold, the dog says, oh, yes, I hear what you're saying and I'm mm-hmm. not confused by all this extra you know, body language and yes. movement and extra words, etc. If I can teach a handler to give clear communication to their dog, the dog learns and responds so much more quickly and, and better. Great. Um, everyone's yeah. happy and the handler's not getting frustrated with their dog. Oh, why isn't he doing it? Well, yeah. because you're not communicating very well. You need to, before you punish your dog for not doing it, <laughs> you know, think about whether you have communicated clearly or clearly. not. And quite often you haven't. So you fix up your act and then your dog will be good. So mm-hmm. I like to do instructor training and, and um, tweaking the technique of advanced trainers. Um, I think um if I can give that to, to people, then the, the, the people who are instructing at clubs can pass on the information to the average pet dog owner. Mm-hmm. Um, they will do a better job mm-hmm. if I do some instructor training and I say, you know, okay, you need to be able to do this, this and this, and this is, what, this is an important skill that you need to teach your mm-hmm. members. So I think I position myself at that level and I think that's the more effective use of my time and my input. Yeah, a real important role there. And when you ran pet dog classes, did you have any favorite groups that are like just like your little pet love? <laughs> you know, everyone loves the puppy schools, but sometimes you feel challenged in another direction and you have, you know, higher level skills in another direction since you have adopted so many rescue dogs in the past. So where, which yeah. one's the favorites you had? Um, well, look, I mean, everyone loves puppy class, mm. and puppy class is very important to get in there at, at ground level. However, 
what I found was my niche, if you like, mm-hmm. was training adolescent dogs. Mm. You know, the, 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 I mean, the adolescent dogs have got the, the, the greatest level of behaviour problems and they're being surrendered because people mm. get this gorgeous puppy and that's lovely and then they suddenly they turn into a terrible teenager and they're impossible mm-hmm. and people can't cope with that. Those dogs end up in shelters. Yeah. And I think it's a developmental stage. I mean, we all know that teenagers are, you know, terrible. You know, what happened to my dear darling little child? Well, you know, he or she turned into a teenager. Um, and um, my friends now who've got kids now have wonderful, you know, they're, they're, they're terrible teens have turned into wonderful adults. They've got kids of their own now. So, you know, it <laughs> turns out well in the end. But people surrender their teenage dogs um, to shelters. Um, um, and I guess my niche is to say, well, how do you deal with um, difficult adolescent dogs? Mm-hmm. So I wrote a book um, which was called Ralph. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, in a, in, a, in Australia, Ralph is a, a is a boy's name or a man's name. Yeah. Uh, Ralph is a bit of a lad, a bit of a larrikin. Um, and people thought that was funny, but Ralph stands for the rambunctious adolescent lunging fostering hound. So the typical out of control <laughs> adolescent dog was the Ralph. Yeah, right, so the book. <laughs> my specialty is how do you deal with Ralph? And um, yeah, um, you, know, you can turn Ralph into a good dog, but um, it's it's more challenging than 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 puppy training or 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 dealing with mature dogs who don't have any particular issues. Mm-hmm. Right. No, that's great. And then you got the your adolescent groups when you classify them per age groups. What would be roughly up to which sort of age? How many months of age? For an adolescent an dog, adolescent, yeah, yeah. Look, it varies according breed. to the breed. Yeah. Um, some of the smaller terriers tend to sort of, well, they hit puberty around nine months, and 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 um, they're that they, they become adolescent um, nine to twelve months, and then they're they're pretty much adults after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, German shepherds and border collies are very late maturing dogs. Um, they will be adolescent from 15 months, two years of age. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't they they don't become adults until they're three or four in some cases. Mm-hmm. So it depends on the breed, and you have to um, um, assess the level of maturity of the dog and act accordingly. And I guess if you're working with the dog in the long term, or it's your dog, you're guiding them through a developmental stage. And what you have to do is the appropriate socialization and training for that dog's developmental stage. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely not. And now changing topics uh, in regards to the best approach for dogs that do have some level of reactivity towards other dogs. Uh, would you prefer, depending on the situation, or would you... Uh, you think classes may be able to help them or private consultations one-on-one? Be... Look, a bit of both. It depends yeah. how serious the reactivity is. But um, if you have a dog who is lunging and barking and going completely nuts, um, I mean, the thing is, I mean, you're not going to be able to get through to that dog or teach that dog anything 
if they're in the middle of being reactive, if you are to give that dog input for training or for um, desensitization or behavior modification, you have to do that while that dog is under threshold. Mm-hmm. The dog has to be calm and relaxed, and then you can say, well, okay, you see over there, you know, 50 meters away, there's a dog on the other side of the park. Have a, a bit of a glance, you can cope with that and make that a good experience, and then gradually we get the dog to be able to cope with having a dog that's a bit closer and a bit closer and a bit Mm -hmm. closer. Now, my ultimate goal would be that the dog could go into a group class or play with a group of dogs in the park Mm -hmm. and be perfectly comfortable. You don't get there immediately. So if you take a reactive dog and you put that dog into a group class at a dog club on Sunday morning, the dog's going to be lunging and barking and going nuts and disrupting the class and is not going to learn anything. Mm -hmm. The dog simply cannot cope with that environment. So my solution is you, the owner, you need um, individual lessons, you need the individual attention, but also we need to work at home. Um, Then we need to gradually um, deal with what, environment your dog can cope with we have Mm -hmm. to introduce dogs or people or whatever the trigger is gradually systematically um, keeping your dog calm and relaxed and under threshold make it a good experience and gradually the dog gets to be able to cope with more and more so that you get to the point where the dog can join a group class Mm -hmm. and benefit from it Um, and um, in that regard group classes are good because you've got um, dogs that are under control, mm-hmm. um, and you can um, you can control how how far they come or whether they make contact, which is um, different from you know going to the park. I mean, the the, the you know the bane of my life is, you know, and, and many clients have told me this that they're trying to walk their dog and keep the dog away from other dogs. Someone comes around the corner with their great goofy lab off mm-hmm. lead. Mm-hmm. And the great, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm being breed specific, but yeah, you know, the, the friendly, yeah. great, yeah. goofy dog who's off lead and the owner's not really got much control and, and, and they're yelling out, it's okay, mine's okay, yeah, as like their that. dog mm-hmm. comes running up and jumps all over your your sensitive, fearful, um, reactive dog. Yeah. And I'm saying, well, your dog might be okay, but mine's not. not. We need some space. Please give me space. Yeah. Oh, but mine's okay. Yeah, well, sure. no, you're not listening to me, and I'm trying to turn the dog around and move away before yeah. um, the, 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 your goofy dog who's okay does damage because you know I've been working systematically to get my dog to be calm and relaxed at other dogs mm-hmm. and if your dog comes and jumps all over mm. my dog then all of that hard work goes out the window it's Very a setback yeah. and I have to start all over again yeah and even if you have like those give me space vests some of them the, the dog is already off leash you know on the street and they don't even notice when you see that their dog's already on top of yours so, That's exactly yeah. right. Um, um, I mean, I think give me space vests are a good idea, yeah. but they only work if the other person with with the um, the off lead dog is is going to take notice and, yes. and behave accordingly. Yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of dog owners don't. They, mm. I mean, that that would be the single most common complaint yes. that I get from clients that I see. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. that um, 
I'm working on my dog and, and, and no matter what I do, um, it all goes out the window because of the behaviour of other dog owners who don't control their dogs. Mm. Yeah. I can't take my dog to the park. I can't go out for a walk, you know. <laughs> we have this funny thing uh, called the midnight walk of shame. <laughs> you, you go out and walk your dog in, 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 in the park uh, at midnight so you won't encounter any dogs. The, the, no, I've got a bizarre sense of humour. The only dog, dogs you encounter are all the other dogs, the reactive dogs oh, that the... walk at midnight. <laughs> or five in the morning, some crazy hours like that. <laughs> exactly. So the, beware the midnight walk of shame. Oh, God. <laughs> it was just shame. a joke that someone came yeah. up with. Oh, that is very funny. So uh, do you have any fun stories with your own dogs or like uh, any ones that you could share with us just briefly as far oh, as you remember? I, I, I think everything I've said has been a kind it's of a funny story, yeah, really. Yeah, 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 it's um, true. <laughs> but, um, look, um, there are times when something very serious happens, but on the other hand, it can be very funny in retrospect. Mm. But... Um, um, well, I, I, you know, I, no, never mind. I, if you can't think now, will come to mind. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the funny stories are not so much what the dog did, but what other people oh, do. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I've done a bit of work um, training and handling dogs for film and television. Mm, interesting. And talk about interesting. that. Yeah, talk about well, that. Well, um, um, often, um, I mean, the producers and directors of film. Um, don't know anything about dogs. I mean, they're focused on they want to get a particular shot. Mm. Um, and, and we say, okay, fine, what do you want the dog to do? And uh, we had this cliche um, <clears throat> where the producer says, oh, this is going to be really easy. All the dog has to do is sit. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, I can get my dog to sit. So you go along and what they haven't told you is that this is on location um, the dog is sitting in a rowboat on the river with three or four kids, you know, rowing the boat, mm. and you as the handler are way up on, on a cliff top, top on the shore trying to give your dog's hand signals from a distance. But, <laughs> but that's fine. All the dog has to do is sit. Easy, yes. Um, oh, yeah. It's not that easy to sit no. <laughs> in a rowboat on a river with kids and oh. respond. And, of course, being... Um, on film, you can't yell out, well, no. can't see sit no. because you're on camera. That's it. <laughs> you have to be out of shot or at a distance and you can give a hand signal to your dog, but that only works if the dog's actually looking at you. <laughs> um, so, um, and, and, and but the film people think, oh, well, you know, all the dog has to do is sit and they don't see that that is actually a very difficult thing to do. So, uh, situations like that, you don't know what to expect. So, you have to be very flexible and your dog has to be very versatile to do things um, but that's another reason for doing good obedience not doing formal obedience mm. i mean how many movies have you seen with dogs in them where the dog's marching up and down you know doing precision healing well mm. none mm. um um you normally see the dog wandering around in the room or um you know or doing something naughty mm. um so, um, well, I had one job where um, oh, all the dog has to do is walk around the room. It wasn't my dog. It was owned by one of my clients that mm -hmm. I was handling the dog. And, and the, the owner said, oh, what does she have to do? And I said, oh, well, she has to walk through the room. 
And he said, oh, that's easy. She does that every day. But it's oh, very yes. difficult to get her to do it on cue. And she had to enter from this side, walk around the room, say hello to the actress who was at the mm-hmm. back of the room, um, and then exit through the other side of the room. All with me giving her hand signals and, and not um, any um, verbal cues. Mm-hmm. It was a very difficult thing to achieve, but yeah, oh no, all she has to do is walk through the room. That's a lot harder, you know, to have your dog just generally, um, you know, you know, milling around informally. And all those um, camera people with those, you know, very uh, huge cameras and things facing her as well, all these strange people around, that's not something she does every day. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, um, you have to have a dog that is extraordinarily well socialized and very robust in that. They might be just sitting there, but they're surrounded by a crew of 30 mm-hmm. and you know a camera that's on a dolly, which is like a tram track, and it's moving up and down, making a lot of noise and movement. And um, it's a very confronting situation for a dog. The dog has to be absolutely bomb-proof, bomb-proof in terms of um, you know noise and movement up very close. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I think we're going to have to go very shortly for another break and we continue a lovely chat, okay? Okay. Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Karam. Tune in and enjoy. Hi everyone, thank you for joining us. We are listening to Zoomies on Radio Karam and continuing our chat with our lovely dog trainer from Victoria, Kay Hardgreaves. Kay, I was going to yeah. ask you how is being for you the change from living the city of Melbourne and going to more living in the outskirts of Melbourne, or not Melbourne because you're further down, I was Phillip Island, isn't it, Coronet Bay? Yes, I'm on, on the Bass Coast, Bass Coast um, yeah. and um, I have a beautiful three-quarter acre block with, it's a 40-year-old house with big 40-year-old trees and a great big garden. And my dog loves it because he can run around in the garden, which he couldn't do when I was living in a townhouse in the inner city. He's in paradise, so, paradise. I would this free, free land. <laughs> oh, he's got land. He can run around. We've got cheeky little rabbits, so he, he chases <laughs> them and they go under. He's never caught one. No. but uh, he's, he's dreaming, well dreaming the day he might be able to get one. <laughs> We've got cows over the back fence, um, there's a few kangaroos and wombats, and, Ooh, and, and if a fox yeah. comes into the backyard, Clancy goes berserk. Um, but he chases the, the, the cheeky rabbits off the property, um, so he loves it. But also we're five minutes away from all these different areas on the foreshore. Um, I mean, I'll tell you a bit about Clancy as mm-hmm. well, yeah, um, um, because... Um, uh, I, um, I just want to tell you a couple of funny stories about how Clancy um, enjoys his environment. Yep. But um, I've told you about um, Chance, my last German Shepherd, mm-hmm. and how the circumstances under which she died, which was in late December, um, not long before Christmas, and so I lost her. Um, 
and I thought, well, in the new year I'll look around maybe for another German Shepherd puppy, but I didn't like what was on offer. And I'm less mobile, so I thought, oh, I have to downsize. Well, I didn't know it at the time. Well, Chance had just died, and a few days later, it was actually Christmas Eve, a little smooth collie litter was born. <laughs> um, Clancy was one of them. And so Clancy's turning 10 this Christmas, but 10 years ago, I got him as a baby puppy. Mm-hmm. Um, and just after Chance died, um, you know, Christmas Eve, Clancy was born, and um, I call him the messianic mutt because, you know, I mean, Clancy has a sense of entitlement. He is the messiah. He does not acknowledge the significance of any other birthday around Christmas time. His attitude is that the universe came into existence when he did and nothing that happened before (laughs) is of any significance. Um, so um, if I said, oh, well, I had chance before you, he'd say, well, what are you talking about? There was nothing before me. <laughs> it's all about me. So Clancy, he's a beautiful, quite sensitive, but very intelligent, very empathic, smooth collie. And um, from when he was a puppy, I did aged care visits with him. My mum was in aged care at the time and she loved him and Clancy would go around in the um, in the aged care facility in the day room, be forty oldies on their in their chairs around the room. Clancy as a puppy, he worked the room. He was worse than a politician. He went to the first, hi, I'm Clancy, and he put you know his chin on their lap and said hello, and then he moved on to the next person, hi, I'm Clancy, and lovely to see you. And he went around literally from chair to chair and did a meet and greet with each and every one of those 40 residents, and they absolutely adored him and he adored them. Um, He he was wonderful in that regard. We did that for five years until, uh, well, he got sick and COVID happened and we had to stop doing those visits, but he was a natural empathic therapy dog. Um, But um, I always think it's a bit funny about, you know, Clancy and Christmas time when there was one occasion when... um, I um, put a whole lot of doggy Christmas presents under my Christmas tree for my mentoring group, my group of instructors, Um, and we were having a a Christmas party and I had intended to to have all these presents wrapped for their dogs. Well, Clancy got up in the middle of the night and he opened all the doggy (gasps) presents. I I, I get up in the morning and there's there's a dozen doggy (gasps) presents and treats and everything unwrapped and scattered all over the place for Clancy, you know, with his sense of entitlement. Is it all for me, Mummy? All of mine? It's it's all mine. (laughs) (laughs) I I had to laugh. He's he's a lovely dog. Um, um, But, um, you know, now I've got... uh, the next Christmas Eve to look forward to, and he'll be turning ten. Oh, and I'm happy thinking, birthday, well, Clancy! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, where did, the, where did the time go? Yeah, it just fly. He's fly. Um, starting to slow down a little bit and getting a few grey whiskers, uh-huh. but um, they're quite a long-lived dog. They're quite a healthy breed, so I hope he'll be around for some time. But um, you know, turning ten and seeing him slow down. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a worry. But oh, yeah. Cl- Clancy is a dog who is very precious. I call him Prince Precious Paws. <laughs> he does not like to get his feet wet. 
Um, so even though we're by the beach, yes. he'll go around the foreshore, and his favourite activity is to weed on, sorry, to wee on every blade of grass. <laughs> but um, he, he he's not really aware of the fact that the foreshore is connected to the beach, and the beach is actually connected to the water. Because yeah. he doesn't. So when he goes down onto the the beach, he very very carefully goes from one rock to the other. <laughs> So that um, he's not walking on the sand. He doesn't like to get his paws wet. Mm. He does not even like to walk on a surface which may once have been wet. And I've got photos of him very carefully going from rock to rock but (laughs) not walking on the sand. Um, um, and you've got so beautiful beaches like Yukanda is a gorgeous beach. Oh, oh it's a gorgeous beach. beautiful, yes. Yeah, oh, we love it. But, I mean, um, he loves everything about the beach except for the water. <laughs> so no swimming for him? No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. And oh he stayed with um, uh, some smooth collie breeders who've got uh, an 80-acre property mm-hmm. uh, and he stayed with his cousins. Um, when I went overseas, um, and they they have a big hill, and he loves to run with the other dogs, mm-hmm. and they all go belting down the hill, and at the bottom of the hill there's a dam, so they go belting down the hill and they leap into the water, except for Clancy, well, he, no, puts he... The, he puts the brakes on and screeches <laughs> to a halt, and stands on the shore watching Look them as him. they go into the water. You think it was a bit of peer pressure, he might just dare, you know, to go a bit further. No, 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 no. He keeps his own ways. <laughs> no, no, no. But, um, but he loves being on the coast. And um, the good thing about it is um, it's a perfect place for me to do my writing mm-hmm. um, because it's peaceful, it's calm. Um, I'm not having people constantly interrupting me. Mm-hmm. And I just relax and I can write. Clancy's happy. You know, he can go into the garden. Every time I need a break, we just go down to the foreshore and we love it. Um, And it's a pretty easy commute into town. Mm -hmm. Um, um, I mean, it's not, um, you know, so far away that it's hard to get into town. Mm -hmm. So I can come in maybe once or twice a month and um, meet with my doggy group Mm -hmm. and maybe go to a concert with a friend in town or have a medical appointment or something um, that I do in town. Um, And um, it's not too hard to get into town. Mm -hmm. And on the note of the books that you wrote, I was going to ask you, how did you come about to write about the lovely title Women at Work? So, I mean, you wrote before and then you just uh, read it. Yeah, that's right. Um, um, Well, I wrote Women at Work when I was first working um, as a social researcher before I did my law degree. Um, it was published in 1982, so it was about, you know, women at work and, um, you know, the equal pay and mm-hmm. discrimination and so on. Yep. It was a very, very current at that time. But it went out of print and I was approached by someone who wanted to republish it. And they said, oh, this is very current. I mean, these are the issues of today. So we want to republish your book. And I thought, well, that's great. And then I said, well, a lot of things have happened since, you know, um, it was first published. That was, you know, 40 years ago. Hmm. So I want to write an update. Mm -hmm. So the original book's being republished, but I'm now working on the update, which is 
well, what has happened since then? Mm. Um, have we achieved, um, you know, equal pay? Have we achieved equal opportunities in the workplace? Mm. Um, and in a nutshell, my answer is we've made a lot of progress, but we're not there yet. Not there yet, no. <laughs> so we've still got issues about, you know, equality in employment and equal opportunities. And I'm also looking at women at work around the globe, not just in Australia. We've got globalisation. Yeah. We've now got, um, you know, um, women working in different countries. Um, so the, the developing world, I mean, China and India and um, the countries are, are industrialising yes, and a lot of women working um, in manufacturing and different industries there. But you know, it's it's they're, they're under different conditions. The um the, the the culture is is more traditional, and that's holding women back. Even though um you know they they might have equal pay strictly speaking, but the culture is very backward. So mm. in China, for example, young women are being employed interviewed for a job, and instead of saying, well, what qualifications do you have, the um interview panel is saying, well, um you know, how much do you weigh and can you wear a pretty dress? And oh, gosh, I mean, that is just outrageous. Oh, God, no way. Um, so um, I'm working on, on updating women at work and um, it's been very well received um, because it's it's so current. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I'm juggling between writing about women at work and I'm going to the London Book Fair in mm, March beautiful. where mm. Women at Work and the, the, the second updated volume are going to be presented. Oh. But the good news also is that when I've finished that, I will be um, um, continuing to work on updating all my dog training books because yeah. I, I wrote some dog training books years ago. I've got a few copies left, but um, they're really out of print oh. and they have to be updated. Yes. So I, ha- I now have some contracts um, to update them. And um, so next year, so sometime around the middle of next year, I will be um, updating uh, the, the dog training books and, I now have uh, a, you know contact with people who do the the promotion and distribution mm-hmm. side of things, which I'm no good at. Yeah. I'm good at writing the books, yes, but, no, but they they yeah. handle the graphic design and printing, exactly. and then you know all the promotional and distribution side of it. Mm-hmm. Would you so do um, an ebook version as well, or just on printed format? Oh, both. both. Um, yeah. Well, um, there will be printed copies, mm-hmm. but. Um, um, Ebooks are, are much more popular these days, yes. and um, so um, there'll, there'll be both. But I, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of people will be will be ordering the ebook versions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is of course cheaper for the the well, person to buy, yeah. um, and easier, you know, for me to organise because you know you can you can just go online, you go click, and and you get your ebook instantly. Yes. Um, whereas I don't have to go through a process of saying, okay, you order the book and then it goes to print and then there's a delay. You can get it immediately. So that's very flexible. It would be nice if you could get like a company like Dogwise, uh, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Dogwise is a very good American company that specializes in dog books Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it will go on their catalogue, but they they are also 
I got an email from them just recently saying we're looking for authors mm -hmm. to be, you know, specifically writing books yep. that Dogwise publishes. Mm -hmm. So I want to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and I've got a couple of other companies that um, have um, asked me to do something on particular topics. And one company wants me to do three very short books, say a 70-page book, three short um, books that are written for the um, inexperienced dog owner. Yeah. So there'll be a mass market for good, simple information about yeah, you know how to train your puppy, how yeah, to manage your dog, mm -hmm. um, dogs and children, and, um, and and the overall title is is you know managing your pet dog in the urban environment. Yeah, oh, definitely, it does But need it. Yeah, it does. Short need it. and easy for the average person, Simple rather than knowledge. what I was talking about before, which is aimed at instructor training for the more advanced people. Yeah, no, great, very very happy for you. So, In... Yeah, I'm very excited about oh, where yeah, writing is going. Very happy for you. Hey, I'm Jane Oakley, a Matilda alumni footballer, number 36, and you're listening to Radio Karen. Stay tuned. Uh, in regards to the mentorship programs that you do, can you explain a bit how it works? And is it like the intake is once a year or do you do two intakes a year? And how do the people study? They do all online or you meet like a few times for uh, mm. practical sessions together? Yeah, I have about a dozen people at the moment who've been with me for a long time. And I guess, um, well, I'm very pleased that they keep coming back. <laughs> um, so they're no longer uh, beginners. Um, so they have become a network of quite highly qualified people. But we have, um, we, 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 we meet twice a month and I've always insisted that you have to have both the theory and the practice. Mm -hmm. um, there are many online courses that you can do. Um, for dog training, um, the problem is you need the hands-on experience as well. I'm, I've always insisted on that. So once a month we get together um, at someone's um, house and um, we watch um, DVDs, or maybe it would be a DVD of some American presenter who's done a session at a, at a conference. So we, we, we watch that presentation, we have a discussion, And that's on, let's say, the first Sunday of the month. On, on the third Sunday of the month, we get together at, at someone's place. We rotate the location around Melbourne, go to your house and then someone else's house. And we do practical hands-on training mm -hmm. um, so that you have both the ideas and, and the practice. Um, and um, we were just talking about whether to have a new intake. And I think... Um, I have to look at my capacity and the fact that I'm out of town and, and how do we organize that. Um, It would be nice but, if people came to you because you could do some practical in your own premises because you've got a lot of space, you know. I have a lot of space, but then I have to persuade people to come maybe way to you. <laughs> travel a couple of days, oh, sorry, a couple of hours to come to me. Yeah. And if you're you know, two, two hours to get here and uh, in the afternoon and two hours to yeah. get back, Mm -hmm. It's a bit difficult, but I'm trying to work out, um, ha um, you know, having a venue. Um, but um, what I what I also discussed is we, we we had our planning meeting about what we're going to do next year, um, saying will we have a new intake and what will we do with them. Mm -hmm. And my feeling now is that 
I don't want to take complete beginners because there are plenty of courses available like Ian Dunbar or Karen Pryor Academy mm-hmm. and other very, very reputable presenters yeah. do um, you know, uh, dog training and instructor training courses for complete beginners. Now, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I said to people, okay, you're starting out, go and do this course and that course, come back to me next year when you're at a more intermediate level mm-hmm. and I will work with you on that level and also I will do the hands-on work because, you know, you can um, enrol for an online course that's run out of the US or somewhere um, and it's good but, you know, you, you, you don't have the hands-on component. So I said, okay, I will pitch myself at someone who is – not a complete beginner, but they've done some sort of you know beginner course. They want to become more advanced, but we combine it with doing the hands-on experience. So that's where I'm pitching myself at. Yeah, and because sometimes even an experienced dog trainer might have some cases they would love to be able to discuss, you know, some case studies to discuss with a more experienced trainers because well, that's right. That's it, and so not everybody the, has it, around the corner someone. Absolutely, yeah, you know, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So with, with my existing mentoring group, they they they've stuck around and become very um, very highly skilled trainers and instructors, and they're. Now, you know, running their businesses and seeing clients and instructing at clubs and so on. Um, and uh, I, I can say, well, okay, um, um, you're seeing a, a client with, a, with a, a problem. You're good enough to do it, but I'm here as a backup. Mm-hmm. So um, they might say, oh, look, I saw this person and we did this and this and this. And I'm saying, yeah, yeah, that's right. You're on the right track or maybe you should consider this. Mm-hmm. But we have um, once a month we have a Monday night Zoom meeting where we do a bit of admin and, and people can say, oh, look, I saw this client the other mm-hmm. day. What do you think? And the group will, will toss it around. Very good. No, that, that's, that's good. So yeah, the, yeah. the core commitment is the, the, the video and, and discussion meeting, the hands-on training meeting, mm-hmm. which are both face-to-face in, in Melbourne, and the once a month um, Zoom. Um, anything else like if if you say well hey um, can I go and um, sit in on your um, consult or or Mm -hmm. attend your club or class or something that's an an optional extra for some of the less experienced people and the more experienced people in the group are now in more of a mentoring role rather than a mentee role so they're passing on their skills to um, the up and coming people which I'm great I mean I, I love that I'm yeah. very proud of that, yeah, and I'm proud of great. the fact that they can do that. Yeah, so you're, you're still running uh, Wagging School as such, or you're not running pet dog classes yourself anymore now? Your specialization has been more the mentorship programs, yeah? Yeah, look, I, I, um, I'm in kind of semi-retirement, yeah. and um, I get tired and I'm out of town, so um, occasionally I will see a client, but for the most part, you know, they'll call me, I'll have a long talk on the phone, maybe mm-hmm. exchange a few emails, I'll work out a bit of a training plan mm-hmm. and then I'll say, well, I think the best person um, to give you the hands-on experience if you want to do some training um, or do some consults or classes would be my one of my group who, um, okay, so, you know, 
this person is in Melbourne, this person would be a good fit, or mm-hmm. you know, this person is in the northern suburbs, this person's the western suburbs, I will pass on your details to them and that you can see them and I'll keep in touch and just give input. But basically I'm delegating the practical training um, to members of my group and, and I, I just sort of, you know, look at what's needed and help to, to develop a bit of a training plan mm-hmm. and then I know who can um, who can deal with that. Mm-hmm. Very occasionally I've got a few local people who will see me but um, – I'm 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 really cutting down on the amount of actual classes and consults that I do. You get tired. You get a bit older. You get tired. <laughs> of course, you don't have the same level of energy anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, that's absolutely right. I mean, <laughs> I get tired. I'm I'm not very mobile, um, and I think it's a better use of my time to, um, well, to to leverage. I've got half a dozen people mm-hmm. who can. See um, the, the clients, and, and um, actively, yeah. Uh, you know, there's only one of me, and there's a dozen <laughs> of them. <laughs> yeah. Now, I was very curious about uh, your recent trip to the US, where you attended the aggression conference in Chicago, and then the USA mm. APDT conference. So, can yes. you chat a little bit about that, please? <laughs> sure. Yes. Well, I went to the US. I was there for four weeks in October. <clears throat> um, Michael Ficaccio is the go-to guy for aggression mm-hmm. and he organised the aggression conference that took place over several days in Chicago and he took aggression in a very, very broad sense of the word and over three days he had oh, many of the top presenters doing sessions and workshops on all sorts of aspects of dog training and behaviour, which had some relevance to aggression. So it, it was a, a great lineup. Um, so I was fortunate enough to be able to meet some of the great US presenters and do mm. workshops that they were presenting. Can I ask so, which type of workshops do they have for this subject, the aggression? Um, well, a very wide variety of topics, but... Um, uh, I guess the big theme that both the Aggression Conference and the APDT presenters were dealing with was this whole question of rescue and, um, you know, rehoming shelter dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a very good presentation about how do you do a behavioural assessment of a dog in a shelter? Is the dog adoptable? Mm -hmm. What sort of training does the shelter have to do before they can put the dog up for adoption Um, and in some cases if the dog's very damaged are they ever going to be acceptable Mm -hmm. Um, what would it take because if if you're running a shelter you can't just take a a fear aggressive or an aggressive dog and rehome it and and, and some person adopts the new dog and then the dog you know bites their kids you can't do that I mean you have to be very hard nosed and do a behavioural assessment and say, well, this dog might come with baggage. Can we address those issues? Can we assess the dog as being suitable for rehoming? Does the dog go to a family or does the dog have to go to a, an older adult without kids? Or, mm-hmm. or, you know, what sort of training do we want the new adopting uh, person to do, etc.? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, 
the people doing behavioural assessments and, and going through the adoption process in shelters are very specialised professionals. And there's a lot of that going on. Well, everyone wants to rescue. It's a feel-good thing. Well, what, you know, people say, oh, well, why go and buy a puppy from a breeder when there's all these dogs needing to be rescued? Now, I personally don't think that's quite right because what happens is, um, you know, that people don't want to have dogs put down, for, you know, like behavioural euthanasia. So there's more and more dogs being put up for adoption who have problems mm. It's good for business because someone goes and, you know, adopts a dog and then they have to be doing, you know, mm. training and behaviour consults for mm. the rest of the dog's life. Well, maybe they just wanted to get a dog that they could, you know, have at home and walk down the street and, you know, let off in the park and they wouldn't have a problem. And then they find that they've got all these problems, mm. um, which they might not have if they got um, a Clancy from a breeder who's a, a lovely little dog who I chose deliberately. Um, and knew what I was expecting. So I've, I'm in favour of choosing a dog that suits me rather than rescuing for the sake of rescuing when that rescue dog's going to have a lot of baggage. Um, but what the, the, the people doing the shelter assessments are saying is we can't do this because a dog behaves according to its environment. Mm. You do an assessment in, in a shelter environment. Very stressful environment for a lot of They're dogs. They're very stressed. They react in a certain way. Um when they go to a home, a new uh, home, um, and they settle into that new home, they're a different dog. Yeah. So it's 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 a very tricky business, but um, that whole area of, of rescue and assessment and rehoming um, came out in um, the the material of a lot of the presenters over the two conference days. Yeah. Yes. Both. Yeah. Right. Yes. In in, uh, in both. And a lot of the things, uh, because I had experience on a volunteer role with another trainer doing assessments for a local shelter, and a lot of the the surrender paperwork, like a lot, there was no history. A lot of the cases, the dogs get dumped, very little history. So you really need, you know, to assess what you see. At least now, a lot of more shelters are using the roles of foster carers, you know, for the. Yes, and and that's. That's been a development for a lot of foster carers now because in the old days, say, the RSPCA or the Lost Dogs Home, legally they would keep a dog for seven days mm -hmm. and if they weren't um, uh, rehomed after seven days, they would be euthanised. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and then, I mean, people were demonstrating outside the Lost Dogs Home and demonstrating against um, euthanasia um, as a result the shelters do change the way they operate. They keep the dogs for longer than seven days. Mm -hmm. They do all these complicated assessments. They have expert trainers who are working yeah. on the dogs before they're That's put it. up for adoption. And then instead of going straight for adoption, they might go to a foster carer who is then able to raise the dog in a, a sort of a normal family suburban environment so you can see what the dog is like in that environment rather than in the shelter environment. And, you know, okay, the the foster carer, you know, lives in the suburbs and, and has kids or grandchildren visiting and, mm -hmm. you know, motorbikes going past in the street. And they know mm -hmm. um, whether that dog can cope and what kind of a, a home the dog can go to in, in the long term. So um, the foster carers are doing a great job. Great, sensational job, yeah. Otherwise, the, the shelters all be overcrowded as well. And what do you find about a lot of the social media rescue groups? You know, they put photos and 
Well, I don't know. I don't think they have any assessment programs there unless they're a big organization. And uh, Yeah, well, I mean, it's a feel-good thing. Of course you see a picture of a, mm. a gorgeous dog and whatever the situation, it's not the dog's fault. But, um, I mean, uh, we don't have homes for these dogs. Um, I mean, if, someone, if you said to me, well, I've got this wonderful dog, And I'll say, well, yeah, of course, I've got a hundred volunteers in my network who are ready and able to take on a rescue dog. Well, no, I haven't. I don't have a hundred people with the skills and the capacity. And those people that I do know have already got three dogs and no space for another one. Mm -hmm. So we simply do not have um, the people available with the skills and the capacity to take on more and more rescue dogs and, and to become foster carers. So um, what do you do? I mean, well, uh, we don't want to have the dogs put down. Um, we don't want to leave them in the shelter environment where they get really stressed. It's mm -hmm. bad for them. Um, but I think there's a bit of pressure mm. on some groups to say, well, okay, you can adopt this dog. The dog's fine. Mm -hmm. And then you later on you find out that the dog's not fine. Mm. Um, so we've got a lot of dogs with problems and baggage and, and we don't have enough people who can deal with those issues. Therefore, you know, um, dogs get um, surrendered again. You get, yeah. you know, what we call it revolving door syndrome. Yeah. The dog's adopted and then it turns mm -hmm. out that the dog can't cope with your grandchildren mm -hmm. so they get sent back and mm -hmm. they get sent back and, you know, okay. they might get uh, rehomed and adopted three or four times. Yeah. That's bad for the dog, really obviously. Mm. And you have to say, at, at what point is the dog's welfare compromised yeah. when there is not a suitable home available? Would that dog not be better off being humanely euthanized if, if, if their needs cannot be met? Yeah. Or yeah. do they have to go through revolving door syndrome being stressed and stressed and stressed? Yeah, that is um, a very tough You know, one. it's a judgment call, but... Um, I think um, I would do my best to help people um, provide a suitable environment for their dog and to, and I would help them to change the dog and in terms of its behaviour modification and increasing the confidence and dealing with the issues. And But even be not, able to I'm, do some training, the organisation to do some training initially before we even be put for adoption, at least teach the dog absolutely. some basic skills to be successful in the new home. Yeah, we do our best, but yeah. I do not have a magic wand. No, I know. I just cannot make all these dogs perfect and I cannot make all these homes, perfect homes available. Yeah. So what do you do? Yeah, that is everything. Um, sometimes um, it's the most humane solution. Yeah. Um, I'm writing an article at the moment for a, an international journal on the topic of behavioural euthanasia. Mm -hmm. It is one of the most distressing things for dog owners. Yeah, I mean, I've tough. talked about my personal dogs being put down at the end of their life, but that was for medical reasons, medical. not for behavioural reasons. Yeah. If you have a dog that's euthanised for a behaviour problem, it is, I think, one of the most difficult things that a dog guardian has to cope with. But it's also very difficult on 
the professional dog trainer. Very much. Because so, the person, the owner might feel that they failed. They failed the dog, isn't it? Because they, they have Yeah. And then yes. uh, the, uh, even they get depressed, very depressed. And, yes. Uh, they, they feel guilty. They, and um, they, they're looking to the trainer really for permission mm, to do something. And, and look, I, I've had a number of clients like this bloke who was a tradie, to be an Aussie tradesman, you know, and he had this dog that was biting. He couldn't take the dog to work anymore because the dog had bitten his workmates about on six different occasions. And so he left the dog at home. He had a toddler and a baby, mm. and and the dog was, you know, I mean, yes. at risk of biting his kids. He was working six days a week. Mm. His wife had, you know, a toddler and a new baby. She wasn't going to be look, looking after the dog. Yeah. Um, and um, in the end, I said to him, look, this dog has a lot of problems and he's told you three to six times that he's going to bite and you don't have the time to deal with him. Mm. Um, you know, uh, uh, and there's his little girl who came home from her, her dancing class, this little four-year-old kid wearing her tutu coming home from dancing and she's dancing around saying, Daddy, Daddy, look at me, look at me. And the dog's looking glaring at her oh, and I'm thinking oh shit yeah. I don't want to see this little girl in her ballet yes, costume having her face ripped off oh. not on my watch no, no. and I said to the guy look this dog has got to go mm. and he said oh but you know the vet will think I'm a terrible person and, and my friends will think no no I spoke to the vet and I explained what we'd done and the vet said um, I was hoping that you would come to that conclusion because we were concerned. That's why we referred them to you. Mm -hmm. And um, subsequently the dog was, in fact, um, put down. And I think that was the only outcome under the circumstances. Mm. And it's tough because I don't know if they could be rehome a dog like that, find a suitable home without children. But sometimes when they let it go for too long, practicing unwanted behavior like that... You know, it's always a serious concern for everyone involved. Yeah. Well, we do our best, yeah. but there will be some dogs who are more difficult or more dangerous, yeah. and we don't have the people available who That's can right. take them on. Yeah. That's the reality. That's the reality. Okay, I was going to ask about these sort of conferences in the U.S. because I've never attended one there. Uh, how many people, how many delegates normally they get? Like the USAPDT and the yeah, well, roughly, the, you know, um, the APDT, well, like us, they have an annual conference. Mm -hmm. It's held in a different state each year. Mm -hmm. um, I think this was only the first face-to-face -face conference Since after COVID, COVID after that yeah. people were starting to get together um, in face-to-face. Uh, I'd say about 300 delegates. That's yeah, pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good. For US, yeah. yeah. And um, some of them were local, um, but some of them had come from other states. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were absolutely amazed that I'd come all the way from Australia to be with them. And they, they, they were so – and they had a produce store, you know, with their, you know, APDT, you know, T-shirts and, uh -huh. and yeah. wind cheeses and everything. And they took me there and they gave me this beautiful blue long sleeve oh, top <laughs> with the APDT and the, as a oh, present to thank me for coming yeah. all the way from Australia. Sensation. So they were great. Yeah. Any other Aussies? Have you come across any other Aussies or you were the only one? 
Um, there were one or two, yeah. but um, uh, not many, no. I don't remember, no. And the aggression one was about 300 people too? or be like, Look, I, 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 you think don't remember, it, yeah. I think it was about the same. Similar. I'm not sure because yeah. um, there was maybe a little bit less, but quite a few. Um, mm -hmm. They had a like a, a plenary session with everyone, but most of the sessions were, um, you know, like workshops that were running um, separately. So you would say, I'm going to go to, you know, so-and-so's session today. There might be maybe 50 people right. in that session and other yeah. sessions going on. So, um, you know, it was a bit hard to judge the a absolute numbers, but certainly a couple of hundred. Yeah, pretty good. Did they have any practical workshops, like with practical sessions with dogs, aggressive dogs, or no? Or just... um, they had practical sessions. They you could um, enroll in advance as mm -hmm. um, someone who would bring your dog and right. do some practical sessions, yeah. only a small number, but then uh, and, and then uh, uh, one of the, um, you know, the, the expert instructors would be um, dealing with the person who'd brought their dog along in advance, um, which is a very tough call because, you know, you're, you're there with your dog um, and you've got, you know, a hundred people watching oh, you. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, so there was a little bit of that, yes. Mm, oh, I understand. So but mostly they were, um, the, the person gave a talk and they had some excellent videos. Uh, mm -hmm, um, Sue um, Sternberg, who was a really excellent presenter, I, I met her years ago. She's been around for ages. Um, and she did a presentation where she showed lots and lots and lots of video clips of dogs. So some is a picture of a dog, um, you know, looking fearful. Mm -hmm. Well, she had, here's a picture of like a, half a dozen different dogs who are fearful and they're all displaying slightly different body language mm -hmm. and their different breeds and, and you got to see a much um, more comprehensive picture yes. Um, and, oh, here's a dog who's doing this and doing that. And, oh, I didn't realize that that was, um, mm. you know, significant. Yeah. So that was really good. So they weren't live dogs. They were videos. Yeah, but okay. the video content she had compiled over many, many years mm -hmm. of working with dogs. Okay. Great footage, then. And, Kay, how do you think the dog training has changed in Australia and uh, how you find the, the way it's going now? Like, any thoughts to about with us? Yeah, look, I, I guess um, the two significant moves have been that um, we're going from just doing club classes and obedience to doing more practical work in your own home and with behaviour problems um, and going along with that, of course, has been the major change from force-based methods mm. to positive reinforcement methods. Yeah. And that's been a significant change. I believe um, you know, you know, when we started uh, using treats and using clickers was frowned upon. Um, now it's become the new normal. New normal, yeah. Um, there are still, of course, unfortunately, the people who really cling to aversive training and, and uh, using shock collars. And we have to work out how to address that problem and you know, um, how how to um, get dog owners to reject trainers like that and say, no, I don't want to you know, pay for your services if that's what you're going to do. 
Mm. Um, and also, you know, persuading the RSPCA and our state governments to say, well, we're going to actually ban these mm. this equipment and these practices uh, yeah. because they're cruel. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a challenge. Um, and um, I guess what we've seen in the time that I've been in the business is, is that so many more people becoming professional dog trainers rather than just um, club instructors or hobbyists. Yeah. So it's becoming a big industry now of professionals, and that's both a good and a bad thing. I don't want to see um, a situation which I think is happening where someone who's looking to set up a business or be self-employed is saying, oh, well, what would what's a good business to be in? Oh, well, dog training works, you know, so I'll set up a dog training business and I'll promote myself and, mm. I'll, you know, I can charge money. Well, they don't really care whether they're setting up a dog training business or, a, you know, a hairdressing business or a whatever. Right. I mean, it's just a, this is a business opportunity. Um, so I'm a bit concerned about that, um, that um, dog training should be done by people who – have the skills and who care about what they're doing and they're not just in it to make money. Yeah, because when you talk about social media and someone asks one, say, just an example, community group from an area and there's a lot of suggestions there and sometimes they don't get this profession, not profession, these people checked out thoroughly if they actually got qualification or experience enough or, you know, who are these people that they're being recommended to? They just go and ring the person and, I mean... (laughs) It needs much more research, you know, to trust your dog in the hands of a totally unknown person (laughs) and not just because Mm. the person or this little group (coughs) recommended you. And some people are so short up time poor and they just go with that suggestion. And I think that's That's a real concern. I think people are crisis-driven and time poor. They will call someone if they've got a crisis. And unfortunately, um, they don't know what qualifications are good and and which are not good. Mm. And in my experience, people who have self-promotion skills don't necessarily have good dog training or teaching skills. Mm. So um, they have wonderful websites and wonderful promotional materials on Facebook and they seem absolutely fantastic. Mm. And... um, you know, they set up all these qualifications and, oh, look, I'm a, a certified, you know, mm. animal psychologist, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. And well, and that sounds impressive. And I'm thinking, well, yes, but what particular course did you do that gives you the, the right to um, give yourself all these names and promote yourself? Well, it's just made up because yeah, we're still unregulated. I mean, I could say, oh, well, Adriana, I, I, I'm I, – I'm, uh, a certified, um, you know, Auntie K's animal behaviour training, mm. you know, expert. And, oh, geez, that's impressive. But no, it's not. I just made it up. <laughs> it's not going to be checked, so goodness me. Yeah, you well, need really to... until we get a bit more regulation. But the, the regulation I'm a bit wary about because you want to make sure we've got good courses yeah. um, and that turn out well-qualified people. Because if you have regulation before that happens, you're going to end up sort yeah. of um, just having regulations that lock in place the, the bad people. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm a bit cautious about that. So, But we're moving towards, we are moving towards. having better yeah. professional courses and better qualifications and 
um, saying, well, you know, uh, at least the client can say, have you got this or that? And they, they know what it means. But we're not quite there yet in, in terms of it's an unregulated industry. Yes, and hopefully um, the associations can as well help and we as individuals put our input because, uh, I mean, I've been behind the scene working on this um, yes. for the PPJ now individually. Yeah, as an independent person, I'll continue pursuing. Well, uh, if you have an organisation like that, they're a peak body, whether it's the PPG who's very explicitly having members who do force-free training mm -hmm. or APDT that at least they have... Um, well, not everyone is totally force-free, but at least they're um, legitimate trainers. They're not cowboys. Um, <laughs> so Cowgirls, uh, most of the trainers well, are well, women. Yes, but well, <laughs> a, a, lot, a lot of the demographic is female, but some of the worst <laughs> defenders with the, the shock collars, and et cetera, are, are, the, are the boys. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's a masculine thing that, you know, I've got a tough dog, so I have yes. to use tough methods. <laughs> You know, I adopted um, Paris, who is my the, the Belgian Malinois, and I had guys coming up to me in the park saying, oh, you can't train a dog like that that's high and drive without using aversive methods. And I'd say, well, actually, yes, I can. Maybe you can't, but I can. Do you want me to show you how? And, oh, no, they're not interested. They just walk away. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, um, I think... Um, The, the, the better trainers and, and, and the more positive trainers tend to be female, but there's a few good good male trainers around. Um, but um, I think um, we're, we're not at the point where we can be a, a totally regulated industry. Um, I think we, we really have to say, well, let's make sure that these courses are adequate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've had input into what are suitable training courses. And, yeah. okay, we have the Cert 4, but you know, that's fine. Yeah. It's the kind of industry standard. But, it, it, I mean, I got feedback from people who are like employ vets and employers who mm -hmm. are saying, we can't employ these people who are coming out with their Cert 4 because they, they don't have the breadth Excuse of me. knowledge or the hands-on experience. Yeah. They need to be in your mentoring program for two years before we can yeah. even employ them at, at entry level. Wow. So there is a problem with our training of uh, our train the trainer programs. And and to be a RT, a RTO, you know, qualified and a recognized course is a fortune even to register, to get to the point of, you know, becoming an RTO. I was just having a look because I was doing yeah. the skills of trade and now the Australian Bureau... Um, Uh, ABS, you know, statistics, I'm just putting the submissions yes. now. And then I just, curiosity, went to have a look. How much RTO course does cost? It's a fortune. <laughs> so, my goodness, yeah. So, I don't know how some of the courses get approved, you know, But anyway. So. It's very expensive and it takes a long time. Yeah. Okay, I think we got to the end of the program now and I have to say a huge thank you for you. Like it's such a, a privilege and a great pleasure to have you with us sharing all your knowledge. Did you enjoy chatting a little bit? Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah. much to talk. We can go for hours, I guess, but
yes. reading about an hour and a half. But <laughs> yeah, you, so I just like a, a huge thank you, really. And um, so maybe another time when you come in past here, we can have you in the studio and you can chat a little bit more or some segment areas. I'd love to, to hopefully just um, for a briefer time. But yes, I'd love yeah, to. Yeah, uh, for a briefer time. I had no idea how long we're going to take. But <laughs> it's beautiful. I'm so glad you could be with us during all the, this enjoyable time. So... Uh, guys, I think that's it for now, and I wish you a wonderful weekend with your dogs. Take them out and about, enjoying the sun, hopefully sunny Victoria, please. And you are listening to Zoomies Radio Carol, and our lovely guest was Kate Hargreaves. Bye! Bye! <laughs> 